morning, church, and join a break from Exodus until February. And we're doing a five-week um, series in Colossians. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can, but it's just one verse, so also feel free to just listen. It's Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'm going to read it again because that was all. <laughs> he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Good morning, church family. It's good to be here. As I walked in, one of my student friends said to me, boy, you look a lot like Mr. Rogers with that tie on. And so I immediately went to my office and took off the tie. It's like, I'm not ready for Mr. I mean, I have a lot of respect for the man, but I'm not him. So no more Mr. Rogers uh, imitations. We enter uh, the Christmas season together and we're taking a pause from our sermon series on on the Exodus to look at what is called the incarnation, simply that God stepped out of time and space and stepped out of eternity into time and space and became one of us, the incarnation. Um, Back in the third, fourth century, there was this debate among theologians as like, who is Jesus? And um, one of those uh, theologians from Nicaea said, Jesus was God, but he was born, that God created. He was a a created being who um, was before the eternity that we know, but who was created by the Father. And then this other man, Athanasius, says, no, that's not true. The scriptures teach us very clearly that Jesus is God in every sense and that the definition of God is that he's unchangeable. And so there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. And fortunately, the church went with um, Athanasius instead of this guy named Arius. But a creed came out of that, and it's, it's a creed that's been passed on through the centuries, and it's been revised from time to time, but it helps to... Uh, reinforce to us and unify the church as to just who is the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to recite that creed together. Know that it's not just a statement of faith, but it really centers on the person of Christ. And he becomes the basis for our understanding of God. So um, let's say this together. Dave can project that for us. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. 
He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That statement really focuses primarily upon the Son, the second person in the Trinity. Um, and it affirms our faith as to who he is, that he is God from the very beginning. There was never a time that he did not exist. Um, use the word Catholic in there, and that means universal, that God has making a universal body uh, called the church of all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What is the incarnation? Simply that God became a human being, became flesh and blood, born to parents much like ours, dealing with life and experiencing all the joys and the sorrows, the challenges and the hardships and the wholesome pleasures that we all experience. I was trying to uh, share Christ with a young friend of ours way back 25, 30 years ago. And um, she was Jewish and she just couldn't understand this whole concept of why God had to become man. And so I was going into, you know, so that he could help us understand that he knows who we are and and um, going into some of the theology behind that and, and just wasn't getting it. And so finally, as we're walking along outside, as we see these ants, they're building their nest on the driveway. And I said, well, Janet, look. So look at these ants here. They're building their nest right here in the crack on the driveway. Now, you and I know that that's not a great place to build a home, right? Uh, how do I tell these ants that if you're not careful, you're going to get run over? This is the place where the car wheel goes. Uh, you're in trouble. Your life is threatened. I could try to convince them, and they probably wouldn't listen. They don't understand English, and I don't understand antis. I could stick my hand down and say, come on, ants, move, move, move. And I'd probably get bit, right, because ants don't like to be disturbed, you know, they protect their territory. Or maybe I could become an ant. If I was a super being, I could actually become an ant and become like them. And then I could speak antes and I could explain to them that this is the place where the car tire comes. It's not a great place for us to build a home. And some of them may listen. Maybe, maybe not all of them. But some of them would say, OK, let's get our backpacks and move somewhere else and build in a safer location. And some might be saved. And all of a sudden, I mean, simple analogy, the light turned on for Janet. 
I understand now why God had to become a man so that we could understand God. And that's exactly what the Gospels tell us, right? Jesus came to declare the Father, to explain the Father. Uh, He was the image of God in all his fullness. And as a result, we have heard the gospel message. He was both the embodiment of God and also the Savior through whom we find eternal life. So today I'd like us to consider what it meant for Jesus to be the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. So why are these two phrases side by side in Colossians 1.15? Image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. First off, as the image of the invisible God, Jesus reveals or he unveils God perfectly to humanity. Secondly, as the firstborn of creation, Jesus is recognized as having supreme authority as The firstborn son, he is the inheritor of all that exists. It was by him and through him and for him that all things were created and he holds all things together. He is the inheritor of his creation. It is his, it belongs to him. And so he becomes man, explaining God to us, and he possesses all as the rightful heir of all that exists. So I'd like us to consider four things considering Jesus as the image of God in the firstborn of all creation. First of all, I'd like us to understand this. We have been created to know God and to be known by him. He wants us to know him and he wants us to know him. God has revealed himself to us, but the revelation that we have is progressive. And it ultimately comes to the fact that the third point is he is fully known through Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, how should we respond to the revelation that God has given us through his son? So let's consider, first of all, that we have been created to know God And to be known by him. That was the design in the Garden of Eden, right? God said, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness and let them rule. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Why? Because he loved us. He wanted to have fellowship with us. And that was pretty much the norm in the Garden. For some time, God would meet them in the cool of the day and fellowship. I was telling Gabriel this yesterday. He said, and they probably played hide and seek and, you know, all these things that they did together that sort of shared life together in the cool of the day as friends. The Bible tells us that inside of every person. God has set eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And Pascal wrote that famous quote, There is this God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man that cannot be satisfied 
by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through his son, Jesus Christ. So I remember even as a four year old. Deeply curious, needing to know what next, what comes after this, what happens when I die? Asking my mother these questions and really being troubled inside, like, give me an answer. Does God love me? Where will I be? Who is he? God has set eternity in the hearts of children. It's an amazing thing. You are here this morning because you are following the longing of your heart to worship God. We have been created to know him, to worship him. And so you're here to exalt him. We're here as a community of faith to lift up the name of Jesus as God's son and gift to each of us for eternal life. So. We were made for a fellowship, but that fellowship, obviously, in the garden was broken by disobedience. The image that he had created us in and the purpose for which he had made us was greatly marred. We have become depraved and fallen and are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. We rebel against God and we hide from him in the garden because... We don't want to be in his presence. And yet he seeks after us. And he says, Adam, where are you? Because he longs to have fellowship with us. The Bible tells us that God has revealed himself in many ways during those different stages of history. And into the presence. He has revealed himself to us in nature. Nature is like a puzzle, right? You look at all the pieces and you can conclude on a starlit night. There must be an intelligent creator behind all this. It didn't just happen. You can see the sunset and just marvel at the colors and think, where did they come from? And know that. As Paul says, that God has revealed himself through nature as his eternal power and his divine nature. We see the catastrophes of life, uh, the hurricanes and the earthquakes and the volcanic eruptions. We think if this is power, just think of the one who created all this. It has his signature all over this beautiful painting. And we are pausing from this series right now, the Exodus, where we have seen God deliver his people out of bondage. And remember, in Egypt, they had a plethora of gods over 2000, all of which they used to try to explain this balance of nature. Where, where does this come from? Uh, how will God provide for me? Who will protect me? And so they would set up all these gods to explain how life works. They knew that God had set eternity in their hearts that there was something more. But they didn't know according to knowledge. And so nature can take us so far, but it doesn't give us the specific details of what's actually happening. So we see, as with the children of Israel, 
that God shows himself through divine deliverance. He comes down and he says, I'm going to show you who I am by showing you in contrast to what they believe. And he dismantles their gods one by one, showing himself to be superior, showing their gods as to be uh, ineffective, um, to be no god at all. And the result is that as people begin to get to know him, he's unveiling himself, disclosing himself to his children. He leads them out of bondage across the Red Sea with this miraculous deliverance into the wilderness. And he feeds them with manna by day through the sky, leading them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, bringing water from a rock. God shows himself to his people. And yet every time they came to the next challenge, what happened? They began to complain. Where's God now? Why doesn't he deliver us? Is God really good? Is he still with us? Does he really care? The kind of questions that you and I often ask when we run into problems. Where is God? I know what he did yesterday, but what about today? What about now? What about my reality? Does God really care about me? And we read this story and we say, silly people, don't you see what he just did? And, and someone will look at our lives and say, silly Douglas, don't you see what God has always done and how faithful he is to you? Why do you doubt And so God revealed himself through nature. God reveals himself through a personal encounter and through deliverance. And then God took them to Mount Sinai and he revealed himself through the law. He gave them a written tablet that he inscribed with his own finger, gave it to Moses to bring down to his people to remind them to underscore this, that I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Any likeness or image that we might create to represent him falls way short of the immensity and vastness of his creative character. The point with this command is, you shall not make any other gods other than myself. Well, no sooner had Moses received this command, he goes down the mountain, and what are the people doing? Making a golden calf. And Aaron is saying, This is the God who delivered you out of Egypt. Here you go, because that's what the people wanted. We are prone toward idolatry, aren't we? Toward substitution, toward attributing success and security and prosperity and happiness to some other source than God himself. God is jealous of that because like a parent who has invested himself or herself in her children, doesn't want the children to go home with someone else. 
You're my kid. I love you. You belong to me. Worship and be my son. The children of Israel were stubborn and unbelieving, even though God had proven himself to be trustworthy. God commanded his people as they're going into the promised land to be holy and to separate themselves from the gods of the people around them. They would find in the land that they were going because he wanted to be that one source through which they found complete happiness and reliance. They didn't obey. They found other gods of the nations around them. They were curious and they were tantalized and tempted to surround themselves with the gods of the people. They delighted in being relevant to their culture. And so they became like the gods they worshipped, full of selfish ambition and greed and dishonest gain, consumed with lust and uncontrolled passions. They were violent and selfish because they longed to fit in with the world around them instead of being separate unto their God. How much we long to be like the world around us, to, to fit in to the culture and to not be separate as unto our God. Well, God was patient with them and in his revelation of himself, he revealed himself through the prophets. He appointed men to come and to speak his truth to his people, to jerk them back into reality, to say, I am the Lord. Do not serve other gods. To Jeremiah, he said, I will pronounce judgments on them, my people, concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. They had failed and God was going to judge them to bring them back to himself. And he did so through leading them to Assyria and some to Babylon and to exile. And in those places, they came to their spiritual senses and said, why did we leave him? And they yearned to come back to God. So God sends the prophets to tell them about the need to return and also to unveil to them that one day he would send his own son. That he would come into the world as the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophets tell us that as to this salvation, those who prophesied concerning the grace that would come to us made careful searches and inquiries. They wanted to know the details about what they were saying. They were saying things like the Messiah will be born of a virgin. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He'll come to Jerusalem riding in on a donkey. He'll be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. He is a suffering servant who, like a lamb, will not open his mouth, but will just take it and die for the sins of the people. Now, with great detail, the prophets are laying out the scriptures that foretell of the coming Messiah. God is fully understood through his son. When the fullness of the times came, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who are under the law. 
that we might receive adoption as sons. And so, in his plan to reveal himself, to chase us down, to bring us back to himself, he comes into the world as the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, the son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. He is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence. Now, Arius said that they were of a different essence. But the fact is, the scriptures tell us that they are of the same essence. My father and I share physical features. My dad has gone on to be with the Lord. But if you were to see my dad standing up here, you'd say, ah, they're related. Same bowed legs, same kind of squirrely looking. You would know that my dad and I look alike. You know, we're related to each other. But, but my brother looks like my dad, too, in different ways. But my brother and I don't look a lot alike. So there's similarities that are passed on genetically from family member to family member, from father to son, mother to son, daughter. But that's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is the exact prototype. He's the original model. He is God in the flesh. There is nothing different. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. I and the father are one. They're they're of the same essence. And and the, the word for this glory, this radiance that he talks about in Hebrews 1 is the word effulgence, which refers to like a mega star. Like Jesus is the ultimate radiance of God's glory. So when you look at Jesus, the scriptures tell us that he had no stately form or majesty. He probably wasn't like six foot five with, you know, broad shoulders and, you know, piercing brown eyes. It probably wasn't the case with Jesus. In fact, I'm almost certain to say that that wasn't true of Christ. He didn't have this little halo around his head. No, the radiance of God's glory in Jesus was seen differently. It was seen in the way that he lived, the way he carried himself, the way he loved, the way he sacrificed, the kinds of attitudes and words that came from his mouth. This is the Savior that we know. What did he come to do? He came to show the Father. It says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and he tabernacled around among us. And, and that's the whole figure of the tabernacle following the children of Israel through the wilderness, that that was the place designated where God was. Jesus carried this human body about on our planet with the presence of God among us, showing us himself. And he came to explain the Father. It says in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. 
So what did Jesus come to do? How did he show the image of God among us? Well, he came to explain the Father in that he introduced the plan of salvation to us. Remember, at the beginning of his ministry, there is this dove that came down, the form of the Holy Spirit, and a voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John writes and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus walked among us, and what did he say? I am the bread of life. I'm food, spiritual manna from heaven to feed your souls. I am the door to the Father, the one through whom you must pass, the way, the truth, and the life. It's in me. He said, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he looked upon the crowds and he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, I'm the good shepherd. I take care. I'm not like the hireling. I love these sheep to the point that I laid down my life for their salvation. I'm the vine. I'm the light of the world. I am, he says, the same term that was used when God revealed himself to Moses. The self-existent eternal one who has come down among you. So Jesus came to explain the father's plan for salvation. What do we do? What have we been singing about this morning? That our life is not just in a creed, but that creed points to a savior. Our life is in Jesus And he is the one who seeks after us, who has come to reveal the father and has offered his life as a sacrifice for our salvation. He's dealt with that problem that happened in the garden. And he has offered us eternal life through believing in him. He's come to establish his kingdom, the church. And that's what he's doing right now. He's calling out from among The world, he's saying, you're mine. This is what I have done for you. I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He revealed the power of God over natural and supernatural ways, transforming water into wine, calming the sea, casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick. Giving life. God raised the dead. Imagine. He's expressed his love to individuals. He comes to the woman at the well and he tells her all about herself. And he says, I'm the water from which I'm the well from which you can draw eternal life. He comes to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. And he requires faith from us. He tells us that the Father requires that we put our faith and trust in him. To each person that he confronted, he'd say stuff like, what do you want me to do? Do you believe that I can do this? Oh, you of little faith. If you just had faith the size of a grain of mustard, you would say to this mountain, be removed. And it would be cast into the sea. 
He takes our little grain of faith. And if it's placed in Jesus Christ, we find in him our hope for salvation. So how should we respond to our Savior who has come to God in the flesh? How have you responded to that God-shaped vacuum in your life? You might be here today and say, I've tried to fill it with a lot of things. I've tried career. I've tried a perfect partner. I've tried family. I've tried pleasures. I've tried to make myself happy. Fantasies, boat, camper, Harley, you know, vacations, travel, all kinds of things that we use to try to fill this God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. But only Christ can really fill that. My challenge to you is to come to the Savior. Put your trust and your faith in Him. How do you respond to difficulties and challenges? Are you walking by faith? Or are you complaining with each new thing like, Where is God now? Is he good? Does he love me? Does he really care? Know that God has continued to reveal himself to us in the person of his son and that he is ambitious for us to know him and for and to know us. Who claims first place in your heart? Are you more concerned about the world around you? Or are you concerned about pleasing him? These are things that we need to consider as we go forward. Now, if you're a believer here today and most of us have accepted Christ as our savior, we ask ourselves this. So the image of God was lost and marred in the fall. But in Christ, it has been restored and is being restored. Now, I am, as Jesus said, the light of the world. A lamp is not intended to be hidden under a bushel basket, to be put on a lampstand for all to see. As the world sees me, do they see the Savior? Christ in me lives his life out through me. How does he do that? Through love, through extending grace and mercy, through forgiving others, through having compassion for the poor and the needy, for having the same heart of the Savior who laid down his life for his sheep toward others. Do I have that heart? Do I show grace and mercy and the peace of God that Jesus showed? Christ became man in all his fullness so that we might come back to the Father and that we might live out the life of Christ in the world that he has placed us. My hope today is that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that today might be the day when you decide, I need to know Christ. I need to commit my life to him and understand more fully the grace of God, what he has done for me and experience that fullness of eternal life. Let's pray. Our father, we thank you and praise you for your mercy and grace in our lives. We thank you for 
coming to earth in the form of your son and for giving us eternal life. Our prayer is, Father, that each of us would respond to the grace that has been shown us. That we would understand the intention and desire on your part and that we would surrender our lives to you. We pray, Father, that you would unite us together as a church and that as we celebrate Christmas together, we would celebrate the God who became flesh and who showed us the fullness of the Father. We thank you for the eternal life that you have promised us through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise for the benediction. Now unto the King immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.